You may be seated. If you would, you could open your Bibles. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. But open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be covering verses 1 through 7 this morning as we continue our series in the book of Revelation. But before we get started, I just want to quickly highlight where we've been for those who maybe haven't been with us the past few weeks, as it may be helpful. Pastor Chris kicked us off three weeks ago when we walked through the first three verses of Revelation and reminded us that this book brings the Bible into full circle. Here we see God's plan, which began in Genesis, and it's brought to completion now in Jesus Christ. And we are a blessed people to read, to hear, to understand, and to obey this revelation of Jesus Two weeks ago, our brother Matt encouraged us with the truth that the book of Revelation is an inspired work of the triune God. That's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it reveals our present reigning king still has work to do. Praise the Lord for that. Jesus is king now, and he is not finished with his work. And then finally, last week, Chris wrapped up chapter 1, where we see that the Apostle John explains who he is, what he is, where he is, and why he's here. And at the center of all of it is Jesus. And note, we will also see that on the Lord's day, John was filled with the Spirit. The glorified Christ revealed himself to John and commands him to write the things that are, as we see in Revelation 1, verse 19. Here we have the Apostle John on the island of Patmos on account of preaching the gospel and Jesus Christ reveals himself to John. And what exactly does Jesus declare to John should write first? The first thing that Jesus tells John to write is a letter to each of the seven churches. So we see that the first act of business that Jesus wants to address is addressing the condition of these seven churches. Revelation 1.11 says, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So you might ask the question, why seven churches? Why does Jesus pick seven, seven churches? Why does he choose to address These seven lampstands, as we discovered last week, as Chris mentioned, and the seven angels that we see in chapter 1, verse 20. We know that the seven lampstands are the seven churches, and the seven seven churches of Asia Minor and the seven human messengers, or some may think that might be angels, but nonetheless, we know that these are messengers that Jesus is referring to. Most agree that the seven lampstands carrying a meaning behind just the seven churches in Asia Minor. Rather, they represent the entire church of Jesus Christ. Because the number seven often represents wholeness or completion in Scripture, many conclude that the seven churches represented here include all of the churches. So these churches are, yes, written to these seven individual churches, but they are for all of us. So may we keep that in mind as we are going through these letters. So these are seven actual churches and actual cities in Asia Minor. 
And they are like churches throughout all history. There are always going to be churches like these seven. And that is so instructive for us as we walk through these seven letters over the next several weeks. We will see that some of the churches are uniquely good and sound and and faithful, but that is the exception. Most of them are a mix of good and evil. In fact, two of the churches considered, are considered faithful, and that's the church of Smyrna and Philadelphia. The letters to them bring up no issues, and they are only commended. But we'll see that five of them are in great, great danger. And we will see as we move away today from the letter of Ephesus that they seem to go in a descending ladder. So this brings us to where we're going to be focusing our time this morning. And that's in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Our brother Rob already read it this morning, but I will read it again. So Revelation chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 reads, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So reads the words of the living God. This morning we will consider seven points that we will draw from this letter. I know seven may seem like a lot, but he is writing to seven churches, and as we see, the number seven illustrates completeness and wholeness. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So buckle up, let's get after it. First, and you can note this on your outline, we want to address the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus. Though it was not the official capital in Asia Minor, Pergamum was, but so many argue that Ephesus was the de facto capital. Think today of modern day Los Angeles or New York City. These are big, large cities. Its population in the New Testament estimated from anywhere from 250 to 500,000 people. The city had a beautiful theater that held approximately 25,000 people. And Ephesus was the primary harbor in the province of Asia. The city was located on the Caister River, about three miles upriver from where it flowed into the sea. However, as much result of the silt deposit over the years from the Caister River, today the ruins of the city of Ephesus are located about six miles inland from the sea. Ephesus was also strategically located at the junction of four of the most prominent Roman roads in Asia Minor. That, including its harbor, prompted many to describe Ephesus as the market of Asia. 
I think there's a map up here that Chris showed last week. You can see Ephesus is on the bottom left. You can see how close it is to the sea. You see the island of Patmos. And then as you work your way, you can see Smyrna, Thyatira, actually Pergamon, then Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. That is the postal route of those seven churches. So many would stop first in Ephesus. But Ephesus was most famous as the center of the worship of the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana. Yes, that is a male and female's name. The temple of Artemis was Ephesus' most prominent landmark and was considered at one time one of the seven wonders of the world. The temple served as one of the most important banks in the Mediterranean world. The temple and its outskirts also provided sanctuary for criminals. Someone got that. Sanctuary for criminals and the bank. Do we want those two together? Okay. Every spring, a month-long festival was held in honor of the goddess, complete with athletic, dramatic, and musical events. The Apostle Paul may have anticipated this annual event as a unique evangelistic opportunity and had been waiting for it when he wrote to the Corinthians that he intended to remain in Ephesus. 1 Corinthians 16, 8-9 says, this is Paul speaking, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened up to me. Paul took advantage of this. Do we do that today? Do we take advantage that the Lord gives to us to reach out and to evangelize? Paul did. The worship of Artemis was unspeakably vile. Her idol was a gross, many-breasted monstrosity. The temple grounds consisted of priests, prostitutes, bankers, criminals, musicians, dancers, and frenzied hysterical worshipers. The philosopher Heraclitus was called the weeping philosopher because no one, he declared, could live in Ephesus and not weep over its immorality. Does this sound like a place that you would want to raise your family? Perhaps start a church? Within the midst of such pagan idolatry that characterized Ephesus was a faithful group of Christians. It was to this church that Christ addressed it was it was to this church that Christ addressed out of the seven and that was Ephesus, which brings us to our next point. Now that we understand a little bit about this pagan city Ephesus, let's draw our attention to the church in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. Perhaps no history, no church in history has had as rich of a history and heritage as the congregation at Ephesus. The gospel was introduced to that city by Paul's close friends and partners in the ministry, Priscilla and Aquila, as we see in Acts chapter 18. And they were soon joined by the eloquent preacher and powerful, powerful debater, Apollos. Paul's real ministry in the city of Ephesus took place on his third ministry journey, though. We see the early work of Paul's ministry take off as he encounters a group of Old Testament saints who were followers of John the Baptist. And we read this in Acts chapter 19. I believe it should be on the screen, but Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, says this. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, 
into that, then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, and that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some, of, when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way of the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul's work of building the church at Ephesus lasted around three years, and then we'll see that Paul's protege, Timothy, would then serve as pastor of the church of Ephesus. Is that rain? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. The farmers are happy, at least. I'm happy, too, for my lawn. So Paul's work of building the church at Ephesus lasted around three years. And we see that his protege, Timothy, would then serve as pastor of the church of Ephesus. And later on, we see another, Tychicus, another one of Paul's fellow laborers. And then finally, last but not least, the Apostle John spent the last decades of his life at Ephesus, from which he likely wrote his three epistles, in which he called himself the Elder. He was no doubt leading the church in Ephesus when he was arrested and exiled to Patmos. So we see dramatic and remarkable events accompanied the birth of the Ephesian church. Paul's ministry profoundly affected not only the city of Ephesus, but also the entire province of Asia. So that was the impact that Paul had and the church of Ephesus had impacted the entire province of Asia. It was undoubtedly during this time that the rest of the seven churches were founded. People were getting saved and baptized all over. All over. And the power of the gospel was causing fear and consternation through the city, causing the name of the Lord Jesus to be magnified. What a great thing. What a great thing. But by the time of this letter, four, deca- four decades had passed. So we were four decades ahead of, of the start of Ephesus and the Ephesian church. The Apostle Paul was gone, as were many of the first generation believers converted under his ministry. Think about this. They had Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, Tychicus, and Timothy. And now the Apostle John. What a lineup of teachers and leaders of this church. Our third point now that we have studied and looked at the city and the church of Ephesus, we're going to look at the correspondent to Ephesus. The correspondent of Ephesus. Revelation 2.1 says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So do we know who the correspondent is to this letter? Of this letter? I'm hearing whispering. It's Jesus. It's not a trick question. The answer is Jesus. Anytime you answer that, it's usually the right answer. Jesus is the correspondent of this letter to Ephesus. 
the Lord Jesus will introduce himself uniquely and specifically to every church that he writes to. So at all the seven churches, he explains and describes himself in a different form and fashion. But we see here in verse 1 that he describes himself as him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Think about that word hold. It means to firmly grip, indicating the authority Jesus exercises over the church. And that includes its leadership. The right hand is a place of strict accountability, strong protection, and strategic usefulness. When I think about hold and firmly gripping, I think about holding my children's hands as we cross a building, a busy street. Right? It's for their protection and the reminder of, who, of their authority, and that is myself. So that's what we see here when we think of the word hold. This is a word of both caution and comfort. Here is the word of caution. May we consider it a word of caution for pastors and for members of the church. So this is for both pastors and members. Pastors must be careful how they treat the members of God's flock, knowing that Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand. And likely, members must be careful how they treat their pastors, because the Lord holds the seven stars in his right hand. For the word of comfort for these leaders, Revelation, we know, is written to and for persecuted Christians. To be a member of Christ's church was to be in harm's way, and all the more, to be a pastor of Christ's church was also to be in harm's way. The pastor of the seven churches put their lives in jeopardy to lead these churches. And then he further says that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. In Revelation 1, uh, 13, as we saw last week, there was like a son of man. The picture is in- intensified in Revelation 2, 1 that we see here, where Christ walks among the seven golden lampstands. We know already from this morning and from last week that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches and that Jesus is walking in the midst of these churches. The reason may be hidden in the word golden. In the word golden. In scripture, the word golden symbolizes purity. Jesus may be walking among these churches to examine the purity of these churches. Some church growth experts say the key to growth is to ask what guests see when they visit your local church. But I think the real key is to ask what does the Lord see as he walks through your church? What does the Lord see as he walks through Harbor Shores Church? What does he see in our worship services, in our ABS, in our small groups, in our youth group, in our children's ministry, in our rehearsals, in our staff meetings? What does he see in our offices, in our elder meetings, in our ministry events, even in our parking lots? Most importantly, what does he see when he follows us home? And is the Lord pleased with what he sees? In verse 2, the Lord who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands declares two words. I know. Jesus will make this statement to each of the seven churches. And this morning, brothers and sisters, he says this to all of us. I know. Have you ever heard the phrase, you can fool some of the people all the time, and you can fool all the people some of the time? Well, guess what? You cannot fool Jesus. 
He knows us fully and perfectly and completely. After Jesus affirms himself as the correspondent to the church in Ephesus, he then commends this church. He commends this church. So we will look at that now as the Lord's commendation to the church in Ephesus. The Lord's commendation to the church in Ephesus. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And then later in verse 6, he says, Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The purpose of this letter is to confront the church at Ephesus. I think we already know that. But specifically for abandoning, forsaking, intentionally and deliberately walking away from its first love. But note here that Jesus begins this rebuke with compliments, not criticism. He tells them what's right before he tells them what's wrong. In fact, Jesus says more positive things about the church in Ephesus that he rebukes than he says about Smyrna and Philadelphia, two of which that he does not rebuke at all. We will quickly touch on five aspects of the congregational life at Ephesus that Jesus commends. First, Jesus begins by acknowledging the Ephesian believers' work and toil. Work and toil. The word toil, or kopos, denotes labor to the point of sweat and exhaustion. It describes an all-out effort, demanding all that a person has to give physically, mentally, and emotionally. A few years ago, myself and several men that are in this congregation participated in a Spartan race. In a Spartan race. Now, this wasn't any Spartan race. This was the beast. The beast. The beast is considered one of the longest, toughest, and most enduring races you can choose to do. Note the word choose. It consists of over a half marathon of running and over 30 grueling obstacles, jumping over fire, crawling under barbed wire, many other insanely things. We ran this race on a hot summer day, and it took hours to complete. All of us that finished, because not all did finish, sadly, this would quickly affirm that this required much diligence and toil and stupidity. Honestly, stupidity. (laughs) But it was worth it for the shirt, wasn't it, Jason? We got a shirt. We got a shirt. The Ephesians worked in the same manner but for the cause of Christ. There was no spectator mentality among these believers. They weren't sitting on the sidelines. They did not want merely to be entertained, nor were they content to eat the fruit of others' labor, but were willing to plow, plant, and harvest their own crop. In the midst of pagan darkness that surrounded them, they were aggressively evangelizing the lost, edifying the saints, and caring for those in need. Guys, what a perfect example for us. What a perfect example of their work and toil. Next, we see the Ephesian believers persevered through trying times. They persevered through trying times. 
Jesus states in verse 2 that they had patient endurance. Patient endurance means to endure under the weight of a heavy load. There were times when it was difficult for the members of this church to follow Christ in the city of Ephesus, but they did not forsake the Lord. They carried heavy burdens for Christ without giving up. They never gave up. This commendation indicates that despite their difficult circumstances, which I think we can all agree that we all have difficult circumstances that we are in right now, the Ephesian believers remained faithful to the Lord. Can we say the same about us? Harbor Shores Church, can we say the same about us? Are we willing to patiently endure through life's various trials? Another praiseworthy aspect of the Ephesian believers was they did not tolerate evil men. They did not tolerate evil men. They held to a high, holy standard of behavior and were sensitive to sin. Undoubtedly following the Lord's mandate to practice church discipline and principles of Matthew 18. And praise God that we do do that here at Harbor Shore as we follow the practice of Matthew 18. Four decades earlier, Paul had commanded them not to give the, not to give the devil an opportunity, as we see in Ephesians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 27. And they were still reluctant to do so. So the Ephesian believers did not tolerate evil men. Fourth, the Ephesian believers possessed spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment. Look at verse 2 again. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The Ephesians never forgot to, they never forgot the admonition Paul had addressed to their elders so many years earlier. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Verse 28 through 31, we see that Paul addresses the Ephesian elders in his farewell speech, and he says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. This was Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. When I think of someone that carried much spiritual discernment, although he wasn't an elder, but he was a leader of a church, served as a leader and served as a youth leader, I think of my father. I think of my father. Growing up, I knew that my father could quickly identify which of my friends or my sibling friends were not the best influences. He was quick to point that out. (laughs) And he was right most of the time. He was also good at judging other people's character. Good at judging other people's character. He wasn't perfect at it, and I don't believe he would say that he was perfect at it, but he did carry this attribute and this gift. And I praise God for the example that my father gave in his spiritual discernment. Now, where does discernment come from? Where does it come from? Well, clearly it comes from the knowledge of truth, right? The knowledge of truth. The only way to to discern error is to know truth. And that's what my father did. He, He knew the truth. You have to have truth in order to see the error. And may this be a quality and characteristic that we all desire to develop and grow in. 
as parents, as friends, as members of the church. May that be our heart's desire to know the truth and to be able to have spiritual discernment, recognizing where this gift comes from, and that it does not come from or within ourselves. And lastly, we see that Jesus adds a final commendation that the Ephesian believers hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. They hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We see that in verse 6. Jesus says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know a whole lot about these Nicolaitans, so we're not going to speculate. But what we do know of them, it's not good, and it's a real shame. They seduced God's people to participate in idolatry and sexual immorality. And in Jesus' letter to Pergamum, we see how some of them gave into their teaching. The church in Ephesus did not give into the negative deeds nor doctrine of the Nicolaitans, as did the church in Pergamum. And that's why Jesus commends them for this. So we just looked at the commendation of the church of Ephesus. Now number five. Let's look at the Lord's condemnation to Ephesus. The Lord's condemnation to Ephesus. Indeed, there are no perfect churches. I think we are all aware of that. But if you read the previous verses, it sure seems like the church in Ephesus was pretty close. They were pretty close. You would think Jesus would just give this church a five-star review on Google. Right? They're a good church. And move on to the next. But verse 4 says this, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. There are three verses of commendation, and there is only one condemnation, one note of condemnation to this church. In verse 14, Jesus says to the church of Pergamum, I have a few things against you. The Lord only had one thing against Ephesus, so you could say, they're doing pretty good. We're doing better than that church. Wrong. This one thing was so serious that Jesus threatened to remove their lampstand from its place if they did not repent. This is the danger of having everything but the main thing. You can note this on your outline. Despite its outwardly praiseworthy elements... The Lord Jesus has spotted a fatal flaw of the Ephesian church. He spotted a fatal flaw of the Ephesian church. To love the Lord is the main thing. And this church had everything but the main thing. They had not, as an older translation reads, lost their love. They didn't lose it. They left it. They forsook it. They abandoned it. They abandoned their first love. It was not accidental or incidental. It was a willful act. It was an intentional rebellion, and it was deliberate betrayal. But it did not take place all at once. It happened little by little. The church drifted away until it had abandoned its first love the love it had at first. What is first love? I don't think we need to exegesis this here. If you have ever been in love, you know what first love is. 
It's honeymoon love. You got strong feelings. You can't stop thinking about the other person. You always want to be together. You talk all the time. You do everything together. You do whatever it takes to make the other one smile. You are on a high from which you will never come down. I remember when Carly and I first got married eight and a half years ago. In those early days, I remember us both having these same feelings and beliefs and actions toward one another. We thought, how could anyone ever get upset with each other? This is great. Right? This is great. But if you are not careful in marriage, romance can become routine. Life happens. And the fire that once consumed the relationship can become a chill that freezes the relationship. Jesus speaks of this in terms of betrayal. It's as if a husband were to say to his wife, I don't love you anymore, but don't worry, don't worry. Things are not going to change. I'm not moving out. I'll still be here. I still work. I still provide. I still father the children. I just don't love you anymore. To abandon your first love is to say, Lord, I don't love you like I once did. But I'll come to church. I'll sing. I'll pray. I'll give. But I don't love you. This is what was going on in the hearts of those in the church of Ephesus. They forsook their devotion to Christ. And all they had left was dead orthodoxy. Headless morality and empty religion. And this can happen to you. It could happen to me. Has this happened to you? Is the fire of devotion of Christ still burning? Have you abandoned your first love? In her book, Glorious Intruder, Joni Erickson Tata writes about the mythical standstill Christian. The mythical standstill Christian. She compares it to other mythical creatures and says it does not exist. In the Christian life, you are either going forward or you are going backward. If Christianity is a vehicle, there are only two gears, drive and reverse. Drive and reverse. There's no neutral and definitely no park. You're not standing still. You're either drawing closer to the Lord, or you are drifting away from Him. This is a letter which warns the church that has drifted away. Drifted away from its first love. Now notice, number six, the Lord's correction to Ephesus. The Lord's correction to Ephesus. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord that verse 4 is not the end of this letter. Right? I was expecting a little more than that. (laughs) By amazing grace, there is still hope for those who have abandoned their first love. And that is a praise and hallelujah from all of us. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. 
Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The church of Ephesus had fallen from the height of devotion to Christ and needed to be restored. And the first step that Jesus says was to remember where they had fallen. He wanted them to remember where they had fallen. There are times when looking back can be dangerous. But there are also times when forgetting the past is also dangerous. Some things you ought to remember. You ought to remember what it was like when grace gripped you. You ought to remember what it was like when grace gripped you. You ought to remember what it was like when grace gripped you. I'm not suggesting that you need to remember the moment you were saved. Some people know the exact time, date. That's that's awesome. But if you've been saved, you ought to remember the aftermath of grace that saved you by the blood of Christ. Jesus commanded this fallen church to remember, and it's in a grammatical emphasis that denotes continual action. Continual action. Keep on remembering. Do not forget what the Lord, by his sovereign grace, has done for you in Christ. Remember. Then the Lord says, next, repent. He calls those in Ephesus to repent in a deliberate rejection of their sins. To repent in a deliberate rejection of their sins. In Matthew 22, a religious leader asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Love for God is our greatest spiritual duty. Love for Christ is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. To know the Lord is to love the Lord. And to allow love for Christ to grow cold is sin. To allow love for Christ to grow cold is sin. The church, this church that could not stand evil, was in sin. And Jesus commanded them to remember and repent. Practically speaking, to repent is to make a U-turn. To make a U-turn in your life. It is to acknowledge that your way is wrong and God's way is right. So you stop going your way and you start going God's way. To repent is to come back to God. It's like when you're driving and you're using your smartphone for directions. Anyone ever done that? Use their smartphone for directions? I have. Not my father-in-law, though. He doesn't need, he doesn't need that. He knows, he knows his way around town and all the other towns. But it's like when you're driving, you're using your smartphone for directions and you miss a turn. What's the first thing that Siri says, if you have an Apple iPhone? What's the first thing Siri says to you when you miss that turn? Does she say, good job. Keep on going the wrong way. No. Rather, Siri usually says, in 400 feet, make a U-turn. And thankfully, most of the time, Siri takes us back to the spot where we got it wrong and gives you a chance to get it right. 
God's grace is much, much greater than Siri. Praise the Lord. We've not just missed the turn. We have, as Isaiah says, we have turned to our own ways. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, as we see in Isaiah 53, verse 6. Jesus is saying, run to the cross and you will find free forgiveness. New life and eternal hope. That means hope that never ends. and never ends. So Jesus not only calls them to remember and repent, but he also calls the Ephesians to restore the deeds that they did at first. Restore the deeds they did at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. Revelation 2.5 The call to do the first work teaches us that love is more than just an emotion. Right? Love is more than just an emotion. Love is what you do. It's what you do. 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Indeed, in truth. Jesus says, repent and do the work that you did at first. Repent and do the work you did at first. This is the second first in this text. There is first love in verse 4, and now there are first works. What are these first works? The first works are whatever you did when you loved Christ at first. What he's saying here is go back to the basics. Pray, read your Bible, worship, and fellowship. Not that these things save us, because if you remember, you have to go back to your first love. So you have to have your first love in order to do these things. You can't just do these things in and of themselves, because we know that we are not saved by our works. The church at Ephesus was free to ignore these instructions, But willful disobedience would result in dire consequences. Look at verse 5 again. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. This is not the second coming of Jesus, but this is a special and specific coming to the church of Ephesus. If the church did not heed the Lord's final call, Jesus threatened to remove its candlestick out of its place. Now, what, is this, what does this mean? It could mean two possibilities. It could mean the church would cease to exist, which we know actually happened. But we know every person that has repented of their sins and who places their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus has eternal security. Amen. But the local church does not. Those that reside in the universal church are secure, but local churches are never guaranteed, and thus we must never presume this. Or, this could mean that Christ would not obviously be present in this church. It could also mean that Christ would not be present in this church. This is worse than extinction. It's worse. Sometimes Jesus let a church continue doing what it was doing and then snuff its light out. 
My prayer is that this would never happen here at Harbor Shores. And number seven, lastly, we see the Lord's counsel to Ephesus. The Lord's counsel to Ephesus. Revelation 2, 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And now we see here that the Lord provides an exhortation and a promise. An exhortation and a promise. Christ's exhortation is, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This closes each of the seven letters, as we will see as we continue on in our study. But it emphasizes a sober responsibility that we as believers have to heed God's voice in Scripture. The use of the plural noun churches signifies the universal nature of this invitation. This cannot be limited just to a group of overcomers in a single church. It must apply to all churches. It must apply to all churches. Every church needs to hear every message, and that includes us here at Harbor Shores. The promise. The promise is addressed to him who overcomes. This does not refer to those who have attained to a higher level of the Christian life, but it identifies all Christians. All Christians. The Apostle John defines it in his first epistle, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It's 1 John 5, verses 4 through 5. All true believers are overcomers who have, by God's grace and power, overcome the damning power of the evil world system. Christ promises the overcomers at Ephesus that they will eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life symbolizes eternal life and the paradise of God is heaven. What greater promise could we ever desire? It far surpasses anything that this world has to offer. I can guarantee that. Christ guarantees that. And it lasts forever. This morning, if you're listening and you have not yet accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to do that today. If you have not placed your faith and trust in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, I beg that you consider to repent of your sins and confess that Jesus is Lord. The paradise of God is not something you will ever experience if you are not in Christ. But to the believer, the example of the Ephesian church warns that doctrinal orthodoxy and outward service cannot make up for a cold heart. It can't. That's why it's important for us to heed Solomon's counsel in Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Is this true of you this morning?
Is your heart cold toward the Lord? Do you need a regeneration of your love for the Lord? Or perhaps love toward others? As 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15 reminds us, for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I want you to think about our core values real quick. Think about our core values here at Harbor Shores Church. You can go ahead and play the slide. For those of you that may not know, God's Word is our exclusive foundation. Fellowship is our collective responsibility. Worship is our passionate life priority. Discipleship is our lifelong commitment. Prayer is our constant resource. And outreach is our joyful mission. But as you can see in the slide, what would it look like if at the center of our core values was the love of Christ. It controls us. It's our why. It's the reason of what we do, what we do. Because without it, we are nothing. All of our actions, all of our deeds are nothing without the love of Christ. We see in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that the love of Christ controls us. Are we allowing something else in our lives to control us? Paul says that Christ died for us so that those who are in him might not live for themselves, but live for Christ. I don't know about you, but I know in preparation for this sermon, the Lord convicted me of areas in my life where the love of Christ has been fading. What is the Lord and His Spirit calling you to consider this morning? If you would like to, after the sermon, there will be elders down here that are willing to pray with you, whether you are in Christ or whether you are not in Christ. And brother and sister, I encourage you to do so. Don't wait. If your love is fading and drifting away, don't wait. We've seen the consequences of what happens to those that don't address the situation. And if you're not a believer, we'd love to meet with you and talk with you as well and pray with you. May the Lord be glorified through what was shared this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son, and Lord, we thank you for your Spirit that is within all of us that call you Lord and Savior. And God, we confess that we often fall and lose sight of our first love, and that is you, Jesus. So Father, we ask for your forgiveness of that. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would continue to do a work in us that we would... um, Continue to reach out to the lost, Lord, as our brothers and sisters did here in Ephesus, Lord. They didn't care where they were located or how awful the city was, Lord. They were faithful to your word and delivered your gospel. And may that be a reminder to all of us here. God, we thank you for your son and for the sacrifice that you paid on the cross. 
so that we can be in relationship with you for all those who call upon the Lord. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen.